Our first guest tonight is, is Louise Martin Chu. Louise has been a freelance writer for more than 30 years, writing in one form or another about art and artists. She contributes regularly to Art Collector, Art Monthly, Art Guide Australia, Vault, Artist Profile, and other publications. She has contributed to books on Stephen Hart, Robert Brownhall, and co-authored Blood Language with the artist Judy Watson. She, along with Fiona Foley and Fiona Nicol, were the co-editors of Courting Blackness, Recalibrating Knowledge in the Sandstone University. She's here tonight to speak about her recent biography of Fiona Foley, subtitled Provocateur. The book was shortlisted for the Marguerite Medal for Biography, awarded for an outstanding biographical work. This is an award jointly awarded by the Association for the Study of Australian Literature and the, Australian Histori the Australians Historians Association. Please welcome Louise Martin Chu to Mullaney. Now, Louise, this is a, a biography, clearly, of Fiona Foley, but I hope you'll permit me if we start with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah? For sure. Um, if only because Fiona is not someone separate from you. It's not a biography where it's someone who, who you're writing about who is a stranger. You actually know her. You've collaborated with her on a number of projects. I wonder if you might begin by telling us how you met and why you undertook this project. I met Fiona 19 years ago um, when I was very heavily pregnant with twins. She'd asked me to come to um, QCA to see her show, um, Red Oak and Me, and she was really keen to meet me, to really invite me to write um, a review of the, of the show. And it's interesting, you know, I'm an art writer, but Fiona really kind of solicited my interest. She said to me at that first meeting that... Um, uh, ben Ginocchio, who used to write about, a lot about her work and who wrote the first um, monograph about Fiona's work, had gone overseas. So she was really looking to interest me in, you know, a bit of a long-term relationship. And the timing didn't really work because those twins came a bit early. <laughs> um, so I didn't get to write the review of Red Oak and Me. But we've just kept in touch and that... I did write some other things about her work. And that really turned into a friendship. And um, Fiona likes a little bit of controversy. And at that stage, I was writing a bit for The Australian. So she knew if she had done something or had a bit of... If she'd buried something in a public artwork that she'd never revealed to the curators, that she could ring me and we'd manage to get a story somewhere. So it's really just gone on from there. And... Um, so we have a real, a very strong friendship now, and it's been an ongoing relationship for all of those years. And the biography is not just a biography of Fiona, though. In many ways, in, in order for, to write a biography of, of Fiona, you had to kind of write a, a history of Gary itself. Did you? In a way, yes, yeah. Um, there was a whole way of constructing it. You know, I'm a white woman writing about an Aboriginal artist. It was very important to make sure that Fiona had agency in the book and that she, that I didn't speak for her. Um, she's a living subject as well, so 
I had to respect her privacy. So I guess the rule I made for myself at the beginning was that I would write about things that she'd already exposed in her work. So as a young artist, she made a lot of work about Gurry, which is a place that she grew up, spent a lot of time there as a child. We went there together and she could really show me where um, the mission was, where her grand great-grandmother had, um, you know, washed her stockings in the creek and um, take me to places like Central Station where her great-great-grandfather had been a timber cutter. Um, there were all sorts of really important things that had happened in her ancestry that took place and unfolded in that place. So the sense, the texture of Gary, which you get from looking at Fiona's artwork, also really had to come through in the book. I mean, I was very taken by uh, one of the images that you gave in the book, which was of uh, Indigenous people on maybe Indian head or something in the north of Gari back in the 16th century when a, a Portuguese vessel went past. And so we're talking like 1547, I think it was the date that, that, that we, we have a Portuguese vessel going past on the coast and people witnessing it there and reporting it and kept taking it into their, into their traditional stories. But uh, I had this kind of flash when I was reading it of that, this boat went past one day, and then it, it, ne it never went again, right? So, you know, it was another 200 years or 250 years before the next boat came past. So you, you would have an awful lot of trouble going back, to the, <laughs> going back to the campfire and saying, look, I just saw this boat. <laughs> <you know?" laughs> well, the way, like, they, the, well, for example, when Captain Cook went past the first time in 1770, it's an intriguing first contact story that's not very well known, that, they was, that Cook's vessel was spotted from the top of Indian Head. And the Aboriginal people obviously communicated that um, down the coastline with um, smoke and the way that they would convey their stories. But then they wrote a song about it, um, which basically said they saw this vessel go past and then it disappeared like um, crabs into the sand, like smoke. So they had their own analogy for what had happened to that vessel without really ever unpacking the mystery, but that the mystery didn't really matter. It just became part of the folklore. And the reason that song was able to be recorded and the words... Um, can be um, were written down is that there was a white a, a white kind of ex-convict ended up living with them and who wrote the story down and Fiona made a film actually called Out of the Sea Like Cloud which is how they described the coming of the vessel um, and really talking about the way um, she had new music written to go with those words but just really in a visual way, unpacking the kind of mystery that came out of that. And she also made parallels to opium, the opium trade that thrived in Maryborough, which is another fairly unknown story that Fiona likes to um, um, popularise and make better known through her work. Because, I mean, eventually the ships did come back and they came back in force and it was a, a disaster for the people who lived there. It was, it was, yes, yeah. Um, uh, Gary Fraser Island was one of the places where they, they would remove people from their country and put them in the mission, their Bagimba mission, and that was a complete disaster. 
Um, I think it, it's height, they might have had 113 people there and all except about 20 died because it was just all predicated on a failure to understand that they took people away from their country, put them all together, they didn't share languages or culture um, and then of course the land couldn't, couldn't provide for them. They didn't understand how to work with that landscape and the, um, of course it was uh, Gribble, the missionary who was in charge of that and they didn't understand how to produce food from the sandy soil there. So there are still, they've actually found those graves not so long ago, 2016 I think. Um, so they, they've now established the site of where the mission actually was but also where um, the people were buried. I've been to Bagimba Creek a number of times, and it's, it's a fascinating, um, fascinating place because Bagimba Creek is one of the largest flowing creeks on the whole of Fraser Island. It's, it, I mean, it's one of those um, on, on Gar. It's one of those um, uh, creeks that flows very deep, and but utterly silent through the sand and very, very clear. But the strange thing about it is that if I was going to choose to live anywhere on Gari, Bagimba Creek would be the last place I would go and live because it's on the, uh, uh, the western coast of the island, which means you're subject to sand flies and mosquitoes. It's, it's not a healthy place to be living in any shape or form. I, I, the, at one point, as I understand it, there was about 2,000 people living on Gari. Is that right? I think, well, yes, I think so, yeah, yeah. Oh, before, before the whites came, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. It was a flourishing civilization. Yeah. So you mentioned the, uh, the person who ran the, uh, the mission there, Gribble. Fiona's great-grandfather has a, a very interesting story about his daughter. Um, it was Gribble's sister, actually. Oh, sorry, my apologies. Who, um, who met... Fred Wandana, Fiona's great-great-grandfather, um, when she was working at Bergimbra Creek Mission. And they obviously had a really incredible connection. And when you look at the photographs of Ethel Grivel, she had the thick glasses and she looked like, you know, you're a very staid missionary lady. But she and Fred, who was a bit younger, obviously had this incredible connection and fell in love. And they went to her brother and asked for permission to marry and he just could only see the scandal that this would cause. So he sent her back home to Yarrabah where he had the other mission and um, kind of manufactured a way to marry her off to his offside up there. So she did finally agree to marry him and they had a daughter and then... Um, the husband, who was obviously fairly not as robust as you might hope, um, suffered a chill in a cyclone or something and died. And Fred Wandana, by accident or design, was not very far away. So <laughs> next thing, they met up again and um, finally ran away to Sydney to find someone to marry them. And then, so that was a very, very brave thing for her to do. Um, I think she wrote to the Board of Missions to tell them that she'd married. Not sure if she was looking for a job or assistance or whatever, but um, because of that relationship, they made rules about sending single women into um, mission communities. 
Um, anyway, she and Fred went back to live at Fraser, at Gurry, at Central Station, and she would have been a pariah, like the people of Harvey Bay and Maryborough would have just could, really could not understand um, this relationship, but they had five children and um, quite a successful life together until much later in um, their lives. So, yeah, it was, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. You know, it's one of those very early stories of black and white relationships in Australia that um, came from very, two very empowered people. Really a remarkable story. Probably we should skip forward a little bit to Fiona as well. I mean, the subtitle of the book is Provocateur. And as soon as um, you get into some of the work that Fiona's been doing, particularly in the last 20 years, it becomes clear why that is her title. She's really um, pushed the boundaries of um, not, just, not just art itself, but of the um, display of art, as it were, in Australia. Yes, she was a um, member of the Bumali Collective, which came together in Sydney in the 80s, really because Aboriginal art that came out of Papunya Tula um, in the early 80s was really seen to be the Aboriginal art in Australia. And Fiona and her colleagues, who were university-educated, really wanted to come at it from a very different direction. and. Um, they make work that looks quite different, that was conceptual and or very political in the way it appeared. Um, Fiona, for example, started making works about massacres and um, in one of those very early works that's in the collection of the National Museum of Australia, she's basically got a row of timber with um, black figures hanging from their necks from there with a white supervisor, overseer beside them. Um, and that work was sold to the um, National Museum when she was still a student in 1986, which was a remarkable achievement. Um, yet her teachers at the, um, the National Arts School and Sydney College of the Arts were telling her that what she was doing was a passing fad and it wouldn't last. So basically she and her colleagues got together and created Bimali Collective just to really support each other through um, a really strong transition period. So she was a leader from the beginning. That, that, um, that piece that you've got, there's some photographs in this book here and some of those of Fiona's art in particular, but there's a photograph of the piece that you mentioned there with the, the hanging figures. But there's, there's actually a story that predates that where we actually used those figures because there was an exhibition that was going on in the Art Gallery of New South Wales that didn't include any Indigenous artists. So yes. she went there at eight o'clock in the morning and, um, well, you tell the story. Uh, she took those figures from her studio and an Aboriginal flag and really laid them on the front of those sandstone steps of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which is, as, as you probably all know, is very colonial and sandstone and speaking to the European heritage of this country. Um, and she basically made her one-woman protest um, on the steps of the Art Gallery as an art student, so fairly audacious from the beginning, you have to say. Yeah. She has a lot of courage, which is why I guess I was really drawn to write this book, because I could see that that courage and leadership really came out of many generations of her family. You know, there was Fred and Ethel who married against um, 
the social mores of the time and then um, uh, her aunt and uncle, Ethel, um, so, sorry, Olga Reeves and um, Wilf, they wrote the first story, the first children's book um, of Aboriginal legends in Australia called The Legends of Mooney Jarl, which has just been republished after its 50th anniversary. Um, and then Fiona's mother, uh, Shirley Foley, managed to secure land on Gurry from the Bielke Peterson government well before native title was ever a thing. Um, so there's just this generation of leadership and Fiona really has taken that mantle on in the way she's made her work, the way she's chosen to promote it. And, the, you know, she does have a bit of a take-no-prisoners style, but if she's asked to do something, she will do it with great integrity and um, courage and authenticity. You know, she's very much her own person. She's, she's moved more recently into uh, photographic work. But it's not, it's not photographs that she takes, it's that she's more that she's setting up scenarios for a photographer to take pictures of. They're like sort of almost filmic series um, where she's telling a story through these unfolding stills. Um, so she made a story about the Begimba mission and that kind of family history with Fred Wandana um, that's called Horror Has a Face um, that was shown up at... Harvey Bay in her most recent survey exhibition up there um, and a lot of this uh, she's also been making films as well so she's really extending herself um, she just recently got an ARC DECRA which is a fairly prestigious academic um, grant, I think it's 300,000 over three years where she's going to produce some research about um, frontier war memorials in Queensland, find those sites and really mark them. So she'll make a series of short films about that that she'll also really make available to the public. They'll be free online just because she really wants... It's really her whole rationale is to tell these stories and get those histories out there. Listen, th thank you. And thank you for writing this book about Fiona Foley and drawing her to our attention. It's oh, thank, you thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you all for being here. Um, it's an amazing event. <laughs>